Coming to you from Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces, and you are listening in. And this month, we welcome a wonderful guest. It's her second time with us, actually. And in fact, she was on the very first Freedom Road podcast, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, seriously, it's amazing. So give it up for Belinda Bauman. Um, She's the author of Brave Souls, Experiencing the Audacious Power of Empathy, and is also the executive director of One Million Thumbprints, and is a co-founder of Silence is Not Spiritual. She's a busy lady, (laughs) y'all. She's joining us on Freedom Road today to help us to dive into the idea and practice of solidarity. We'd love to hear what you think about this topic as well. So make sure you tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road directly at Freedom Road Us. And keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think. We love that back and forth. So just please keep it coming. So I've been thinking about solidarity a lot lately. I mean, we are literally living through one of the most divided times in American history. I think part of what's caused that division is that people who have previously been marginalized, oppressed, and silenced are now speaking up. We are sharing our stories. They're saying no more. They're refusing to play by the rules. Folks are telling their stories, and when they do, they're not sugarcoating. They're telling the truth, the whole truth, so help them God. Oppression is being unmasked as a result. So I don't think the division has actually grown. I think it's just been revealed. But inherent in that revelation of division is the revelation of mountains of pain, previously unseen. So how do we engage with all that pain? What does it mean? to stand in solidarity with the oppressed, the marginalized, the crushed, the exploited, the outcast. Belinda, I want us to start with your story. Would you be able to share with us the story of the very first time that somebody ever stood in solidarity with you? (laughs) You know, my own thoughts about solidarity have been formed so very deeply in my adult life. And I think a lot of us, when we're thinking about solidarity, we can go back to maybe the schoolyard, you know, when a bully was picking on us, you know, or someone took a punch for us or someone stood up for us that Mm. like literally put their body in harm's way for us. I guess my own awareness of what solidarity actually is, which I know that we'll get into it in a second, but for me, it was learning how to love from a woman named Hope. 
Esperance is her name, uh, which means uh, which means hope in French. I met her in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, a literal war zone. She's a preliterate woman who literally was in the midst of fleeing violence for her life. And when I look back at this season and think, wow, what was it in that moment that I let down my guard so far in listening to her story that it actually brought my own story to life? Oh, wow. Esperance told me how she watched her husband die at the hands of rebels She woke up one night with her children and her husband and had to flee under gunfire into a place that they thought was safe, an IDP camp outside of Goma. And while they were there, they realized, you know, the overcrowding and the resource scarcity that they had just walked into, man, the the fight for water and the fight for food and the fight for space. And so they, she and her husband went into the, uh, local forest into the Virunga National Forest, actually, to collect firewood to try and create charcoal to sell to get a little extra cash Mm. to supplement this meager amount of calories that they were getting from the UN at the time. She was telling me this story, looking in my eyes. This was her story to tell. And I'm, I have to say, it took me a while to be able to look back into her eyes. It felt so personal and so vulnerable, but she told it with confidence. She told it as if she wanted me to hear it, as if she wanted someone to bear witness to it. And so when she got to the place where she said that she heard the rebel soldiers enter the forest and she saw them, kill her husband in front of her. My whole heart was in pain with her. She watched the death of her husband, and then they took her, stripped her naked, and raped her for hours. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Her story ended with this thought, that she would have been abandoned in the forest by her perpetrators, And she believes that she would have died, Lisa. She would have, her soul was shriveling, her body was bleeding out, and it was women who had been sent out by the local church to go into the forest where the rebels and the local militias and armies were taking women to rape them. To find women like Esperance. That was their job. They went into the forest to find these women. They collected Esperance. They cleaned her. They stayed with her through the month of rape treatment. And at her own desire, they stayed with her until her son was born. And then they stayed with her as she finished 12 months of trauma counseling so she could become one of the women that goes into the forest and looks for women who are on the verge of death and listens to their stories and helps them physically, emotionally, and spiritually by bearing witness to what has happened. Now, this is my moment of solidarity. When Esperance finished this story, 
I had the opportunity to touch something in my own life, to let something so vulnerable in my own life, like my own moment of sexual violence, come back to the forefront of my brain. And I grabbed a hold of that. And looking at her and her looking at me, the only request she ever made of me, she didn't ask me for money. She didn't ask me for for anything. There was no pity and no need in her voice. The only thing she asked me for was that I would be willing to tell the world her story, that she trusted me, that I heard her, that I believed her, and that I would be willing to stand in the gap with her and let people know what was going on. It changed my world. And because she called out in me my own story, we weren't standing as one person over another. We were standing together as two sisters sharing a story and saying, I'm with you. I not only heard you, I felt you. And I not only felt you, I'm willing to do something about it. And it changed everything for me. Literally, it changed my career. It changed my educational direction. It changed the way I say things. And it's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, you know, and I do what I do now with One Million Thumbprints. Wow. What? Oh, my gosh. How long ago was this? How long ago did this happen? So the first time I went to Congo was 2013 with a group of women from the church. We wanted to learn from women who were bearing witness to each other's stories in a way that actually brought healing, not only to the women who had experienced violence, but brought healing to the church that they were a part of. Let me just say that you, what the kind of listening that you did is rare. Because a lot of people will, you know, listen as in, um, or they'll hear people, they'll hear people talking, but they won't really listen with um, an openness of heart, mind, and body so that the body actually resonates with the person who is speaking, the person who is telling their story. I just recently heard somebody talk about this and I thought it was really powerful. There's a whole organization that actually exists in order to help us to hear each other more deeply and to resonate and to identify when we've resonated. So I just want to say, I, I, I see that. I see you and I see I see what happened there. And that's it's really powerful. I wonder, can you tell us about the very first time that you stood in solidarity with somebody else? Mm. Well, I think it it stems back to, to Esperance because she only made one ask of me. She wasn't she wasn't looking at me saying oh, I see you feel sad for me. That's enough for me. <laughs> it, was, it was a bigger ask than that. It was, would you be with me? Would you stand next to me? Would you use that pain to change the system I'm locked in so that we feel it together and we change it together? And I don't know, Lisa, you know this, you've, you've marched enough and you've locked arms enough and you, you exemplify this kind of solidarity 
in what Freedom Road does, right? It's that journey. But when that ask comes, you only have two answers, really, and that's yes or no, right? (laughs) Well, it's true. It's actually very true. Yeah, and you certainly cannot say yes and then do no. Right. I mean, come on. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. but we do it all the time, don't we? <laughs> we do it all the time. Mm. Um, and yeah, I'll tell you, that's it, that's the temptation. It is. It is. So here's my here's here's my ugly backstory to all of that. Right? Hmm. <laughs> is that okay? Okay. 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 See, now we got to go there. We have to go there because. People can't grow unless they know how hard it is and how to overcome. So, yeah, please tell us the ugly backstory. <laughs> I am so grateful that you are a safe space for me, Lisa. <laughs> the, you know, I think that my own adult realization that my Christianity was not quite what I thought it was was when I met Esperance because she, in telling her story in a way that invited me to listen to it and not just listen to it, but stand with her in it to not only feel her pain, but then to do something with both of our pain because bearing witness to her story called out my own story. We were able to lock arms and then that's not a weak response to a big problem. My problem was I had some really, in my own Christianity, I had some really high functioning, super dysfunctional ways of dealing with other people's pain. And this is, you know, 30 years into my own Christian walk. And, you know, being a Bible-believing, praying, worshiping lover of Jesus— It wasn't that my heart was malintended or it was more like I was, I was running around completely missing the point. And I think I'll own a lot of that, but I'll also say in working with you, Lisa, we both have realized that the church isn't always that good at calling us up in our theology, our lived theology, If we say it and we say we believe it, we should be doing it too, right? That's right, because it's not like you're exactly right. It's not just about what we say we believe. It never has been about that, and certainly not to the Hebrews who actually wrote the Bible, right? Uh Their their understanding of knowledge was kinetic. It was in the body. Okay, so this is my ugly backstory and how I was how I was living this idea of Christianity in this super high functioning, really dysfunctional response to other people's pain. Like when a friend or even just, you know, my cubicle mate in any one of my jobs would say, Oh man, I got I got a mess going on right now. That first sign of pain I would reach for that quick fix that I I kind of call sympathy. Sympathy says something like this. It says, you know what? I really care, but I really don't need to know what's going on, right? I engage my heart, but I ain't going to, I don't need to engage my head because that's getting a little too close to you. 
If I, if I give you my thoughts, I want, may not have room for other thoughts. So I'll just show you that I care. It alleviates my guilt from your pain. And in the end, it kind of is a little bit like one-sided therapy. And that was very much my Christian nice. That was probably my first reach and the easiest when other people were in pain in front of me, whether that was, you know, at the Thanksgiving table or God forbid that that's what I met Esperance's story with. So how did that interact with Esperanza's story? Was your first response to Esperanza's story sympathy? And if so, what's the, how did she respond to that? And and what was it, what was it like? Yeah. Well, I think if we go back to, to what was going on in the air, as opposed to what was going on with the words, because you got to learn, man, don't we? Our lived theology requires that we do more than just use words like we just said. So reading the air around Esperance, she kept looking at me. She did not lower her eyes, except at the beginning of her story to make sure that I was, that I was listening, Right. I felt like uh, she was inviting me to not reach for that easy reach of, oh, this is so sad, and reach deeper and say, oh, this isn't only sad, this makes me mad. (laughs) And gosh, somebody, oh, maybe me, needs to do something about this. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road Podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Thinking Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment, we find ourselves in full of protests, anger, and activist momentum. Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. So, Belinda, what does empathy have to do with solidarity? Well, I think we misdefine empathy all the time. And I think by misdefining empathy, we miss the actual power of it. I mean, when I met Esperance and over this season that you and I have been working for the strength and power of women's stories to be heard in the church and borne witness to, I see a deep difference between maybe the, I don't know, honestly, the ugly way that we respond to people's stories that's not empathy. So for me, the maybe the best way to define empathy is by not defining it. <laughs> 
if I go back and I look at kind of the ugly backstory of my experience with listening to women's stories of pain in conflict zones, you know, for, for 30 years of a Christian walk, I was using three super high-functioning, incredibly dysfunctional ways of responding to other people's pain, to their stories of pain. But not only that, it, at times, even their stories of rejoicing. So I was looking at like, you know, Romans 12, where where we talk about the marks of being a true Christian. And one of them is to rejoice with those that rejoice and to weep with those that weep. But that's all happening in the context of a call to the church to not overcome evil with evil, but evil with good, to actually get in the trenches and do good things for people that are suffering and people that are rejoicing. So I was meeting other people's weeping with three super, super high functioning, dysfunctional ways. And they looked like sympathy, apathy, and antipathy. When I would reach for sympathy, it would look a lot like therapy for me, not for the person that I was bearing witness to. It was more like a quick fix. I kind of say sympathy sounds like, oh, you know what? I so care about what's going on with you right now, but I don't really need to know what's going on. You, you're good. You're good. And it alleviates my guilt, but by not leaning in to their actual story, by not bearing witness to what's actually going on in their lives, man, that sympathy very strategically held the person in front of me at arm's length. God forbid that's what I met Esperance with in her story, right? You know, if that wasn't working for me, then I would quickly reach for apathy. Okay. And I think apathy is another one of those things that we miss. We mislabel all the time. And I think apathy is more insidious than don't know, don't care. It's more like this. It's I know. Don't make no mistake. I've Googled it. I've read the stories, I've seen the white papers, I've listened to the podcasts, but I don't really care. And that has a really painful ring to it, especially for those of us that have painful stories. Apathy knows what's going on. Yeah. It makes sure that it understands the issue. It may, but the reason that it does it is so that it can diagnose the problem. So that it can stay above the problem. It has an answer, but it doesn't engage in the pain. It still keeps the person that's suffering at arm's length the same way that sympathy does, right? So if sympathy wasn't working for me, that, you know what, I care, but I really don't need to know. Or if if apathy wasn't swinging it, that, you know what, I know what's going on. I can tell you what's going on, but I really don't, I really don't care about what's going on, man. I just, it's a professional diagnosis right now. Let me help you. I can't help you if I'm hurting. If neither one of those were working for me, then I would reach for antipathy. And antipathy is aggressive. Antipathy is genuinely, look, I don't know and I don't care 
and oh my God, are you still talking to me? That kind of defensive response that becomes almost self-protecting in the face of somebody else's pain. Is it almost self-protecting or is it self-protecting? Come on. Yeah, you're right. It is absolutely (laughs) armor. Let's call this thing a thing, right? It's a thing. Let's just say this is a thing. And I'll tell you, the reason why I say that is because I mean, Esperance certainly isn't thinking it's almost self-protecting. I mean, the person who is telling their story and bearing their soul is not almost hurt. Yeah. They're hurt. (laughs) They're hurt because folks are, folks are self-protecting rather than actually connecting. That's right. Right. So if sympathy is keeping one arm out and people at bay and antipathy is kind of, you know, lording over and keeping them at one arm at bay, antipathy's got both arms out and turning their back. Right. Right. Wow. So the thing is, Lisa, none of these ways of relating to other people's suffering changed my life or the lives of the people that I actually, in my heart of hearts, sought to help find peace. Only, I believe, only empathy and solidarity has the power to do that. It is, in my opinion, the only place muscular enough in our faith that can meet the pain of our cultural moment right now because it involves the pain of women in the church right now their experience not not maybe not, not in congo even though it's happening in congo not in syria or south sudan It involves the pain of women in the church in our backyard. They are close. And so holding them at arm's length looks a lot like they're standing right in front of us. So what you're, what I hear you doing here is I hear you bringing it home, (laughs) but I also, I also, I mean, I think I want to, do you mind if we are conversation partners, we talk all the time and kind of dig deeper and dig deeper. And there's something in what you said that I'd like to dig into. Yeah. You cool with that? All right. right, Let's cool. I'm learning. Let's dig. Let's dig. (laughs) No, no, no. This is really great. I mean, the thing that I wonder about is, is there solidarity? Can there be solidarity if one, what does power, that's the question. What does power have to do with solidarity? Power differential. Yeah. Well, I I defer to the person that has taught me a lot about solidarity, and that would be you, Lisa. When I called you and said, oh my gosh, are you seeing what's happening? Women in the church aren't being heard. And not only that, the church is silent and we can't, are you bugged by the silence? And you were like, oh my gosh, <laughs> silence is not my role. <laughs> I think the idea that solidarity, there is a key component to solidarity that requires us to enter the situation of the one with whom we want to stand in solidarity with. Making it, as Paulo Freire says, making it a radical posture as opposed to a passive one, right? (laughs) So I don't know. If I have to dial down into that, you know, that aha moment of my time with Esperance, I was the one 
holding power. I was a white middle-class woman from America sitting in front of her quietly, but man, she was keenly aware of where I came from and what I stood for, even in the geopolitical pain of Congo, right? Because Congo's got a huge backstory with America. You know, I was... I would not necessarily, as an American, be seen as a non-aggressive force, right? <laughs> but yet, what happened in that moment, the magic sauce, maybe if you want to call it that, was her leading me, Esperance leading me carefully and skillfully into her story, so much so that I felt the invitation in even in all of my dysfunction, you know, mind you, I'm, I'm like wanting to choose sympathy. I'm wanting to choose apathy. Oh, I can diagnose this problem. I'm wanting even to throw up that, that, you know, self-protection because she was dancing pretty close to a story that I had in my own life. Right. So, yeah. And I think, I think that there's something else really powerful about that one moment, like the moment when she, when you see her as teacher, yeah, that moment, like that moment is also the moment when you see her as human. Amen. And you see her as created in the image of God. That's right. And as a result, called to exercise dominion in the world. Mm -hmm. Because in that moment, she is exercising dominion in your life. She's, she is actually stewarding your knowledge in that moment. And there's power, real power there. So I think there's something about solidarity that recognizes it's a connecting, it's a, it's, a, it's a moment of connection with the other person that is human connecting with human. One call to exercise dominion, recognizing and connecting with the call of the other to exercise dominion, and therefore grabbing hands and walking together as equals. Like that, that for me is like, you know what I mean? <laughs> it, yeah, and that, that's what I see in that moment. I, I got chills right now because I think my greatest pain, Lisa, is the moments that I missed that for 30 years prior yeah. to meeting Esperance. Why? I, you know, I know that I had had teachers like her in my life before this, that stories have come to me and that solidarity with those that were suffering, especially women with stories of violence in their background, man, I know they came to me, but I didn't, it's not that I didn't see them. I didn't engage them. I missed this opportunity to do what we were just talking about, which actually is the story of redemption. It is the bearing witness. I think it's the bearing witness that Revelation talks about that 
is called overcoming. Yeah. And you know what we're going to overcome? We're going to overcome those times when people have been told they're not made in the image of God. Mm. We're going to overcome oppression. Mm. We're going to overcome marginalization and silencing. We're going to overcome the squashing of the image of God on earth. Mm. But through the practice right? The practice of recognizing the image of God in the other, and therefore their equal call to exercise dominion in the world, mm. to exercise stewardship of the world. That's right. I get that. Yeah. I totally get that. I, that. That resonates with me. It resonates deeply with me now. And that ugly backstory of those years that it didn't resonate with me. Yeah. Now, why didn't it, why didn't it, and who taught you not to do that? Like, what, what causes that? No joke, because Belinda, here's the thing. I mean, look at this. We, how many listeners actually understand what I'm talking about, right? Mm. Have you been following the impeachment dealio? <laughs> Like, let's, can we just, seriously, can we go there for a minute? Yeah. Just a minute. Yep. Um, where we're going to touch on it and we're going to jump off because this is not that episode. But still, I need to understand how it is that white evangelicals can still be with this president who is being impeached, who was impeached, but they are still rallying to him. How is it? That there is no capacity to resonate, to hear the stories, to even re- like feel the cries of the brown children who have died on the border. Like I'm not even talking about. I'm not even talking about sitting down and listening to somebody, and you know, I'm talking about watching the news and watch and learning the fact. Or maybe they haven't learned it. Maybe they were listening to other news sources that aren't telling them, but. That 5,000 children, more than 5,000 children have been separated from their parents in the last three years. Like that, how do you, what is it that keeps one from engaging empathy, from, from resonating, from entering into solidarity with those families? And because it's not solidarity, it's not solidarity to say, you know, I mean, another way to put it is, you know, what they are doing is they're saying, oh, the cost of judges is dead brown children at the border. Okay. Oh, the cost of judges is millions of people losing their health care. Okay. You know, it's like, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and I don't, I really don't mean to do an us, them. That's not what I mean. But look, we got to call a thing, a thing. It's a thing. Yes. And it, and my question to you is, where does that lack of empathy, lack of solidarity, when is it taught in the church? Mm. Oh. Well, I think if I go back to this idea of, of comfort, <laughs> of, wow. you know, honestly, you know, I can call it privilege. I can call it a lot of things right now. But like you say, let's call a thing a thing. When I am willing in the face of somebody else's suffering and pain, like deep suffering and pain, like economic hardship, like incarceration, like, like gun violence at the level of I'm going to take my newborn baby and flee for miles over a desert to get where I think this baby might be safe. Right? Yeah. When we choose 
to hold that story of bravery at an arm's length, that that means that we are, and I learned this a lot from you, These the, the way to call a spade a spade, that means we're locked in a system that has taught us to choose sympathy, apathy, or antipathy as our options. Because empathy is far too costly. Solidarity and the empathy that leads to solidarity is far too costly to us both personally and corporately. Wow. Is it is it that empathy and solidarity run the risk of causing the need to change? <laughs> you know what? I guess, you know, my biggest theological pushback when I was writing Brave Souls was this. I had a number of pastors come to me because I was saying very much like you say in in the Very Good Gospel, that this kind of behavior can save the world. <laughs> like it's actual salvation, as opposed to this other thing where we believe that just our words or just a moment of bent knee gets us in front of Jesus. I don't think that's the case. I actually think that our life lived in solidarity with those that suffer is what leads us into this ongoing salvation that we experience in the church. Now, the story for me, obviously, was systematic enough for me to believe it, right? Because like I went to school, right? I was listening when I was in church. The system told me that being nice when somebody's in pain was acceptable, that I could care, but not really care to know, right? The system told me that apathy was acceptable, that I could sit through an entire sermon that actually had statistics and actually asked me to read a newspaper article and actually like pointed to some professionals that were scientists and stuff, but I didn't really need to care at the end of that. Or I could sit in a pew and have somebody from the front say, you know what, this could be very painful for you. So right now it's better for you to go get a pedicure and do some self-care than it is for you to feel the pain of somebody else who has their child in a cage. Oh my God. And so Lisa, my sister, this idea is embedded in our, in our, in the messages that we as white evangelicals are speaking from our pulpits. Wow. So you're saying it's not, so here's the thing, because I'm not seeing it actually in the theology, because I think the theology comes from the scripture and the scripture, Mm. the scripture makes it very clear Mm. that we are called to, well, maybe actually, maybe it is in the theology. (laughs) So we're going back. I mean, we really are having a real conversation here. This is, y'all, this is, this, we are off script. (laughs) But, but I think that the thing that is so powerful here is that I think we're actually zeroing in on something. The problem actually might be in the theology. It might be in that belief that came around the the turn of the 20th century that doesn't bear any resemblance, actually, to the understanding of salvation that was carried by Charles Finney when he created the altar call and on the altar or near it, he put sign-up sheets for the abolitionist movement. Um, right? Like it, it doesn't bear any resemblance to that. But in the 20th century, the gospel was reduced to what you believe in your head 
not what you work out kinetically in your body, not how you engage with society, not who you fight for, um, who you align with, who you stand in solidarity with, which is what Charles Finney called the people to do. And where did he get that? He got it from Jesus. Because the very author of our faith, Jesus, I mean, he is God in solidarity with humanity. He is God literally come to earth standing in solidarity with humanity, with humans who are being subjected to the powers, who are being subjected to empire and being told they are not, they are less than human, who are being subjected to the brutality of one another. And it is God who comes to earth to stand in the middle of that and say, stop, and who protects who, who stands with all humanity and says, no, the image of God must be protected. And so with that, I want just, to just say, we are walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment we find ourselves in, full of protests, anger, and activist momentum, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. So, Belinda, what is the greatest cost of a lack of solidarity in the church right now? Ooh, you know, if one of the most valuable things the Church of Jesus owns, we have as our calling card in this world, our witness. And if we bring our silence as our witness to other people's suffering, if we bring our inaction as our witness to other people's suffering, or even if we were so callous as to bring just a diagnosis of their suffering, but no actual alignment with it, I think that we are in the red zone of anti-witness. It's not just doing damage, but People like my children who are 18 and 20 years old, and they are on the cusp of being able to not only vote, but choose their own expression of faith, where they're going to go to church, how they're going to go to church, how they're going to be like Jesus in this world. They're saying things like, that that I'm being shown right now in the church, this silence in the face of deep pain is not for me. And the gospel of Jesus is represented in such a way that is not an invitation, but it actually pushes people out the door. And I think that that is the deepest danger 
that we have as the church right now. Yeah. And let me just say, I don't think that that's actually limited to the evangelical church. It would be very nice to think it is for like a lot of other arms of the church, mainline Catholic, historic Black church, Latino Asian churches. I think that in all of our churches, there are areas where we lack solidarity. There are areas where we have the ability to grow in our practice of solidarity. And I think there's another, there's an area of the church in particular where all of us have room to grow, all of us do. And that is that, that, that question of gender, right? So, oh yeah. So I want to ask you, you know, you and I, we, along with Emily Nielsen um, Jones, uh, launched Silence is Not Spiritual about two years ago now. And it has it was an incredible campaign and now it has relaunched and it's we have solidarity sunday coming up you know solidarity sunday is actually about it's about giving churches the ability to stand in solidarity with the survivors of gender based violence you know so i wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about solidarity sunday mm. i think that heart behind silence is not spiritual is pretty much in the name, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> that, you know, we've said a number of times, let's just call a thing a thing. Uh-huh. And silence, as we said, is not a spiritual practice in this case. The silence in the face of the witness of women experiencing violence in the world but especially in our own backyard, is, if we call a thing a thing, is anti-witness. When we're standing so close to the people that we say we love and don't make room for their story to exist in its reality amongst us, or if we meet that story with blank stares or diagnosis, I think we have missed our moment to rise. So when when we created silence is not spiritual when we called our sisters our 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 theologically based sisters our action based sisters our you know all across the spectrum sisters to join us our call was to say hey let's let's go up let's rise let's not risk losing this opportunity to break the silence and mm. to help others break the silence. So we asked people to join a call to action for the church to stop standing by and start standing up for women and girls who experience violence in the world and especially in their backyard. We want to see the world as a whole, the way Jesus sees the world, but we can't ignore the fact that one out of three women in this world experience sexual harassment and sexual violence in their lifetime globally. That means you spit in any given grocery line and you're going to hit someone who has experienced suffering, right? Yeah. Yeah. In our pews, right? Lisa, when you stand up to preach on a Sunday, you are looking at every third woman, just statistically, has a story. It doesn't change in the church, does mm, it? That's right. Our Solidarity Sunday is, at its most simple form, an invitation for the church 
to empathize, for the church to lean into breaking the silence. And there's a lot of different ways that they could do that at whatever comfort level they're currently in. Not that comfort is our goal, but that the on-ramp, whatever on-ramp they want to use, whether that is looking at the silence is not spiritual statement, which you can find on in our Solidarity Toolkit or on our website, and letting their congregation begin a dialogue around it. Do we agree with this? Is this something we as a church need to adopt? Is this something we need to spend the next year talking about? That can be an on-ramp. Another on-ramp is inviting a survivor of violence to share her story and skillfully inviting the congregation into bearing witness to that story. That feels like a risk for a church these days. But if we are going to come into this experience in true witness and not anti-witness, solidarity has to mark that, right? Am I right when I say that our call to churches for Solidarity Sunday is to on-ramp with their minds and their hearts and their actions. The fact that women who have stories exist in their church and making room at whatever level their churches are ready for and then pushing that just a little further (laughs) so that they begin to engage. They engage this kind of solidarity with women who feel very much alone these days. Yes. Amen. And I think that honestly, that there, I mean, one thing I'm becoming more and more aware of is the number of men who have also suffered from, from sexual violence that are in our pews. And so we shouldn't really, and I I know that we don't really just limit it to women, but when we talk about sexual violence, we talk about violence, we're, we're really talking about humanity and the realities of the ways that we we brutalize each other, right? So, you know, I mean, I know that one of the ways that we have two different ways people can get engaged, and one is through their churches. Their churches can have a, a t- they can do a testimony, have somebody actually stand and skillfully, powerfully share their own story from the pulpit on Solidarity Sunday. That only requires about three minutes given to maybe five minutes if you include prayer for survivors of gender-based violence on that Sunday morning. That's January 12th mm-hmm. of this coming year. So we're talking literally a few weeks from now and, or actually like less than two weeks when, once this is um, broadcast. You can also, throughout the whole month of January, put together talking circles, which we give you guidelines on how to how to run that allow for multiple people in the church to begin to share their stories in talking circle. And the church can decide how to run it in terms of who can be a part of the talking circle in whatever way that, that they would that they deem appropriate for their space. But the most powerful way is actually to have anyone who wants to come and share. 
give them the ability to come and share their intersection with this issue, whether it is somebody who has experienced violence or someone who knows someone, has a loved one who's experienced violence or someone who has no connection at all, but wants to listen and gain solidarity. And for those who have perpetrated violence, to have spaces in the church where they can actually share their stories as well and begin begin the process, begin the process of um, of true healing. And I don't, and we have said this from the very beginning that we don't, we believe that there's no place that has more capacity for deeper healing than our spiritual communities. And in particular for us, the church, because the church has, we have the category of both forgiveness and redemption. Mm-hmm. So we have the category of the releasing of the debt that the other owes to us, which empowers us in the long run. And we have the category of holding accountable those who have sinned and walking an actual path toward penance and towards healing. And so there is all of this. <laughs> there is all of this that the church is invited into at this Solidarity Sunday. And people can take action both corporately through their churches, but they can also, in, as individuals, come on the silenceisnotspiritual.com, our website, and they can actually share their stories um, through the website. They can just go right through the homepage, they click on your story, and they're given a form that they can then just write out their own story and share it with the world during the month of January. So please, please do engage Please do make moves towards solidarity in your church. Please do take this window of an opportunity to grow your capacity and your practice of empathy and solidarity. The church's witness will be the better for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm reminded in Romans 12, Lisa, that... At the very end, around verse 21, it says, do not overcome evil, but overcome evil with good. And I think if we want to, if we want to summarize this, this is, this is an opportunity for us as the church to rise, to gather in our communities, whether that's the church in our living room or whether that's the church in pews or whether that is the church in us as individuals to gather and or in the street or in the st- <laughs> oh oh i would love to see this happen in the street <laughs> oh, be amazing and it but we're gathering during a dedicated time which is powerful in a dedicated place which is powerful to commit out loud and in person that we believe the stories of survivors and that we want to see the culture of silence change and that that we believe that violence against her is violence against us. And that because we're saying this as people of faith, we believe that violence against her is actually violence against our God. And we have seen that in the crucifixion. 
And we have seen that overcoming of violence in the resurrection. And it's in that power, I think we can gather as survivors and as listeners to survivors, those that bear witness, and even as perpetrators. I think you're right, Lisa, that we have an opportunity to be actual healing in the world on this really complicated issue. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road Podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates. And we promise we will not flood your inbox. And again, if folks want to sign up for Solidarity Sunday, you can do that on the homepage of silenceisnotspiritual.com. We invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop in the first week of each month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road. Thank you.